Section 2 of History of Modern Philosophy by Alfred William Benn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1. The Philosophical Renaissance. Part 2. Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon, 1561-1626, was by profession a lawyer, by taste a scientific inquirer, by character a seeker after wealth and power, by natural genius an immortal master of words. He began life as the friend, adviser, and client of Elizabeth's favorite, the Earl of Essex. When that unfortunate courtier, in disregard of his warnings, rushed into a treasonable enterprise, Bacon appeared as one of the most zealous of the counsel for the prosecution. Strictly speaking, this may have been his duty as a loyal subject of the Queen. It was hardly his duty, even on the Queen's commission, after Essex's execution, to assist in the composition of a pamphlet blackening the memory of his former friend and patron. In the next reign, Bacon paid assiduous court to James and his favorites. When the first of these, Somerset, fell and was tried on a charge of murder, he conducted the prosecution and, finding the evidence insufficient, suggested to James that the prisoner should be entrapped into a confession by dangling a false promise of forgiveness before his eyes. Bacon owed his final exaltation to Buckingham and as Lord Keeper allowed himself to be made the tool of that bad man for the perversion of justice. A suit was brought before him by a young man against a fraudulent trustee, his own uncle, for the restitution of a sum of money. Bacon gave sentence for the plaintiff. Buckingham then intervened with a demand that the case should be retried. Upon this, Bacon saw the parties privately, and annulling all the deliberate decisions of the court, compelled the youth to assent to the ceasing of all proceedings and to accept a smaller sum than he was entitled to. E. A. Abbott. On another occasion, he exercised his judicial authority in a way that did not square with Buckingham's wishes, but quite legitimately, and without any consciousness of giving offense, whereupon the insolent favorite addressed him in a letter filled with outrageous abuse, to which Bacon replied in terms of abject submission. This meanness had its reward, for in 1618 the philosopher became Lord Chancellor. After a three years' tenure, Bacon was flung from his high position by a charge of judicial corruption to the truth of every count in which he confessed. The question is very complicated, obscure, and much controverted, not admitting of discussion within the limits here assigned. On the subject of Bacon's truthfulness, however, a word must be said. The Chancellor admitted having taken presents from suitors, but denied having ever let his judgments be influenced thereby, and his word seems to be generally accepted as a sufficient exoneration. But its value may be doubted in view of two statements quoted by Dean Church. Of these, one was made in the House of Commons by Sir George Hastings, a member of the House, who had been the channel of Aubrey's gift, made to the Chancellor Pendente Lite, that when he had told Bacon that if questioned, he must admit it, Bacon's answer was, George, if you do so, 
I must deny it upon my honour, upon my oath. The other was that he had given an opinion in favour of some claim of the masters in chancery, for which he received twelve hundred pounds, and with which he said all the judges agreed, an assertion which all the judges denied. Of these charges there is no contradiction. The denial of Bacon that he ever allowed his judgments to be influenced by bribes, and his assertion that he was the justice judge since his own father, cannot then count for much. As to the plea that the justice of his sentences was never challenged, who was to challenge it? The successful suitor would hold his tongue, and the unsuccessful suitor could hardly be expected to complete his own ruin by going to law again on the strength of the Chancellor's condemnation. Bacon, at any rate, knew quite well that to take presence before judgment was wrong and criminal, as his answer to Egerton sufficiently shows, an answer which also fully disposes of the plea that to take such presence was the common custom of the age. Moreover, had such been the common custom, Bacon might have taken his trial and pleaded it as a sufficient apology or extenuation for his own conduct. This would have been a somewhat more dignified course than the one he actually pursued, which was to plead guilty to all the charges, throwing himself on the mercy of the lords. It has been suggested that he did this at the desire of his powerful patrons, whose malpractices might have been brought to light by a public investigation. As his punishment was immediately remitted, some arrangement with the king in Buckingham seems probable. But for an innocent man, to have saved himself by a false acknowledgment of guilt would, as Macaulay shows, have been still more infamous than to take bribes. The desperate efforts of some apologists to whitewash Bacon are apparently due to a very exaggerated estimate of his services to mankind. Other critics give themselves the pleasure of painting what has been called a Rembrandt portrait with noon on the forehead and night at the heart. And a third class argue from a rotten morality to a rotten intelligence. In fact, Bacon as little deserves to be called the wisest and greatest as the meanest of mankind. He really loved humanity and tried hard to serve it, devoting a truly philosophical intellect to that end. The service was to consist in an immense extension of man's power over nature, to be obtained by a complete knowledge of her secrets, and this knowledge he hoped to win by reforming the methods of scientific investigation. Unfortunately, intellect alone proved unequal to that mighty task. Bacon passes, and not without good grounds, for a great upholder of the principle that truth can only be learned from experience. But his philosophy starts by setting that principle at defiance. He who took all knowledge for his province omitted from his survey the rather important subject of knowledge itself, its limits, and its laws. Had his attention been drawn that way, the very first requisite on empirical principles would have been to take stock of the leading truths already ascertained, but the enormous vanity of the amateur reformer seems to have persuaded him that these amounted to little or nothing. 
The later Renaissance was an age of intense scientific activity conditioned, in the first instance, by a revival of Greek learning. Already before the middle of the 16th century, great advance had been made in algebra, trigonometry, astronomy, mineralogy, botany, anatomy, and physiology. Before the publication of the Noam Organum, Napier had invented logarithms, Galileo was reconstituting physics, Gilbert had created the science of magnetism, and Harvey had discovered the circulation of the blood. These were facts that Bacon took no pains to study. He either ignores or slights or denies the work done by his illustrious predecessors and contemporaries. That he rejected the Copernican theory with scorn is an exaggeration, but he never accepted it, notwithstanding arguments that the best astronomers of his time found convincing, and the longer he lived, the more unfavorable became his opinion of its merits. And it is certain that Tycho Brahe's wonderful mass of observations with the splendid generalizations based on them by Kepler are never mentioned in his writings. Now, what really ruined Aristotelianism was the heliocentric astronomy, as Bruno perfectly saw. And ignorance of this left Bacon, after all, in the bonds of medieval philosophy. We have seen in studying Bruno that the very soul of Aristotle's system was his distinction between form and matter, and this distinction Bacon accepted without examination from scholasticism. The purpose of his life was to ascertain by what combination of forms each particular body was constituted, and then, by artificially superinducing them on some portion of matter, to call the desired substance into existence. His celebrated inductive method was devised as a means to that end. To discover the forms, we are instructed first to draw up exhaustive tables of the phenomena and forms under investigation, and then to exclude from our list any form which does not invariably coexist with the phenomenon of which the form is sought. For example, if we are trying to discover the form of heat, it will not do to adduce celestial nature. For, though the sun's light is hot, that of the moon is cold. After a series of such exclusions, Bacon believed that a single form would finally remain to be the invariable cause of the phenomenon investigated and of nothing else. F.C.S. Schiller As Dr. Schiller observes, this method of exclusions is not new, nor indeed does Bacon claim to have originated it. At least he observes in his Noam Organum that it had been already employed by Plato to a certain extent, for the purpose of discussing definitions and ideas. And elsewhere he praises Plato as a man, and one that surveyed all things from a lofty cliff, for having discerned in his doctrine of ideas that forms were the true object of knowledge, howsoever he lost the fruit of this most true opinion by considering and trying to apprehend forms as absolutely abstracted from matter whence it came that he turned aside to theological speculations. Bacon must have known that this approach does not apply to Aristotle, as indeed the very schoolmen knew that he did not, except in the single case of God, 
give forms a separate existence. But probably from jealousy, he specially hated Aristotle, and in this particular instance, the Staggerite more particularly excited his hostility by identifying forms with final causes. These Bacon rather contemptuously handed over to the sole cognizance of theology as consecrated virgins bearing no fruit. As a point of scientific method, this condemnation of teleology is quite unjustified, even in the eyes of inquirers who reject the theological argument from design. To a Darwinian, purpose means survival value, and the parts of an organism are so many utilities evolved in the action and reaction between living things and their environment. But Bacon disliked any theory tending to glorify the existing arrangements of nature as perfect and unalterable achievements, for the good reason that it threatened to discountenance his own scheme for practically creating the world over again with exclusive reference to the good of humanity. Thus in his Utopia, the New Atlantis, there are artificial mines producing artificial metals, plants raised without seeds, contrivances for turning one tree or plant into another, for prolonging the lives of animals after the removal of particular organs, for making a number of kinds of serpents, worms, flies, fishes of putrefaction, whereof some are advanced to be perfect creatures like beasts or birds, with flying machines, submarines, and perpetual motions, in short, a general anticipation of Jules Verne and Mr. H. G. Wells. Such dreams, however, do not entitle Bacon to be regarded as a true prophet of modern science and modern mechanical inventions. In themselves, his ideas do not go beyond the magic of the Middle Ages, or rather of all ages. The original thing was his method, and this method, considered as a means for surprising the secrets of nature, we know to be completely chimerical, because there are no such forms as he imagined to be enucleated by induction, with or without the method of exclusion. The truth is that the inductive method which he borrowed from Socrates and Plato was originally created by Athenian philosophy for the humanistic studies of law, morality, aesthetics, and psychology. Physical science, on the other hand, should be approached as the Greeks rightly felt, through the door of mathematics, an instrument of whose potency the great chancellor notoriously had no conception. Thus his prodigious powers would have been much more usefully devoted to moral philosophy. As it is, the essays alone remain to show what great things he might have done by limiting himself to the subjects with which they deal. The famous logical and physical treatises the Noam Organum, and the De Augmentis, notwithstanding their wealth and splendor of language, are to us at the present day less living than the fragments of early Greek thought, than most of Plato, than much of Aristotle, than atomism as expounded by Lucretius. Macaulay rests his claim of the highest place among philosophers for Bacon, not on his inductive theory, to which the historian rightly denies any novelty, but on the new purpose and direction that the search for knowledge is assumed to have received from his teaching. 
On this view, the whole of modern science has been created by the desire to convert nature into an instrument for the satisfaction of human wants, an ambition dating from the publication of the Noam Organum. The claim will not stand for two reasons. The first is that the great movement of modern science began at least half a century before Bacon's birth, growing rapidly during his life, but without his knowledge, and continuing its course without being perceptibly accelerated by his intervention ever since. The one man of science who most commonly passes for his disciple is Robert Boyle, 1627-1691. But Boyle did not read the Noam Organum before he was thirty, whereas residing at Florence before fifteen, he received a powerful stimulus from the study of Galileo and his chemistry was based on the atomic theory which Bacon rejected. The second reason for not accepting Macaulay's claim is that in modern Europe, no less than in ancient Greece, the great advances in science have only been made by those who loved knowledge for its own sake, or, if the expression be preferred, simply for the gratification of their intellectual curiosity. No doubt their discoveries have added enormously to the utilities of life, but such advantages have been gained on the sole condition of not making them the primary end in view. The labors of Bacon's own contemporaries, Kepler and Gilbert, have led to the navigation of the sea by lunar distances, and to the various industrial applications of electromagnetism. But they were undertaken without a dream of these remote results. And in our own day, the greatest of scientific triumphs which is the theory of evolution, was neither worked out with any hope of material benefits to mankind, nor has it offered any prospect of them as yet. The same may be said of modern sidereal astronomy. From the humanist point of view, it would not be easy to justify the enormous expenditure of energy, money, and time that this science has absorbed. The schoolmen have been much ridiculed for discussing the question how many angels could dance on the point of a needle, but as a purely speculative problem, it surely merits as much attention as the total number of the stars, the rates of their velocities, or the law of their distribution through space. A schoolman might even have urged, in justification of his curiosity, that some of us might feel a reasonable curiosity about the exact size, if size they have, of beings with whom we hope to associate one day. Whereas by the confession of the astronomers themselves, neither we nor our descendants can ever hope to verify by direct measurement the precarious guesses of their science in this branch of celestial statics and dynamics. End of section 2